You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. We'll be looking together at verses 18 through 20. You'll find this on page 927 of the Pew Bible. That's Acts chapter 18, and we'll be reading together verses 18 through 20. Acts chapter 19, I apologize. I knew that wasn't the right one. Okay, chapter 19, page 928 of the Pew Bible, verses 18 through 20. Hear the word of God. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In the ancient city of Ephesus, it was known the world over for its magic. It was in the first century, historians tell us, a major center for the black arts. Even Shakespeare mentioned their focus upon magic in his comedy of errors. And the Bible, as you know, is filled with references to witches and magicians and divination. For example, when Moses faced Pharaoh, the Egyptian magicians used magic. Through satanic power, and that's what it was, satanic power, they were able to mimic some of God's own signs and wonders. And while impressive, their counterfeit signs were no match for Yahweh. When the magicians turned their staffs into serpents, it was Aaron's staff that swallowed theirs. As then, so in Ephesus, God proved that his divine power is supreme. You know something, Western obsession with empirical evidence has downplayed the existence of magic. It's a very real thing. However, in the biblical view, the black arts play a significant role. Paul even tells us in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's scripture's testimony about magic. And the Bible is consistent in its condemnation of all the occultic practices. It says magicians in particular are in league with the devil and they're wicked. Well, the gospel of Christ claimed the hearts and the lives of even magicians in the city of Ephesus. 
Just as God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage, so he delivered these magicians from the occult. And how striking that was. Large numbers of Egyptian magicians had embraced the good news. They had witnessed, of course, Paul's ministry and the humbling of Sceva's sons. And the sheer majesty and the power and the authority of Jesus' name must have impressed them. Also deeply sobering, I'm sure, was the display of God's displeasure over the black arts. In Ephesus, then, consciences were pricked and sinners were led to repentance and they openly confessed their sorcery and they burned their vast array of books. Now, in the ancient world, those books would have been considered extremely valuable. All books were expensive. They were difficult to make. But those books on magic were especially so. And had they been sold on the open market, they would have fetched an enormous price. Luke even tells us that their estimated value came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, if those pieces were drachmas, today those books would have been worth about $178,000, almost 200 grand. And to be clear, in that day, a drachma was an average day's wage. One day's wage. So these new converts gave up the equivalent of 50,000 days' wages. <laughs> it was convincing proof of the truth of their conversion and the power of God to save sinners. Those who had been committed to magic and the occult were now freed from that kind of slavery. And I think it helps illustrate Paul's instructive comment to the Corinthian church. He said, and I quote, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Many Ephesians, well-versed in the black arts, were locked in strongholds. They couldn't get out. Astrology, fortune-telling, spell-casting, necromancy, the magic arts. They would invoke harm upon their enemies. They would try to seduce other people. They perhaps used telepathy or they would summon the dead. They were entrenched, in other words, but the spirit and the word prevailed mightily. And I think one thing that it proves is that no one is beyond hope, not even those who are deeply embedded in the occult. At our corporate prayer meeting last week, we heard the good news of an unlikely convert. For 35 years, this man had rejected the gospel and stiffened his neck. This is a true story. He would not be convinced. He refused to repent. He rejected the gospel over and over again. And despite all the prayers and all the tears of his loved ones, he remained incalcitrant. But last week, we rejoiced to hear that he had been converted by God's grace. A man in his 40s. And you must know that we had often prayed for him in our time of corporate prayer, and I believe this was an answer to those prayers. 
The Spirit opened his eyes and unstopped his ears and renewed his heart. It was an epic and miraculous change, what we call a miracle of grace. We had prayed for it, and yet, why was I so surprised? I was shocked. Oh, me of little faith. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I'm here to say to you this morning that no one is beyond hope. No one can thwart the power of the Holy Spirit. The Ephesian magicians turned from their magic arts and they turned toward Christ. And there are few, if any, people more unlikely to be converted than Satanists like these. But those magicians were convinced of their sin and convicted of their need for a savior. And it reminds me of what the apostle tells the Hebrews, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I've walked out that door And I've had people say to me, why did you tell on me? And I had no idea what they were talking about. It's the word of God piercing. These magicians realized that their occultic practices were incompatible with the Christian life. And you might ask me, well, how long after their conversion did they burn their books? I don't know. The text doesn't tell me, but what's important is the fact that they burned them. It may have taken a long time because Christians, as you probably know, are not perfected instantaneously. It doesn't happen overnight. A sinner who flees to Christ for refuge doesn't forsake every sinful habit all at once. And don't get me wrong, he should do it. He's under obligation to do it. But as a new creature, given the power to do so, it's a difficult thing. Both scripture and experience show that sanctification, which is what we're talking about, is a gradual process. It often takes time to be delivered from sinful ways of thinking and behaving. The remnants of sin that still abide within us exert a powerful influence, sometimes even after decades of walking with the Lord. And I'm ashamed to say that I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. That's a long time by some measure. And I'm still trying to shed some of those sinful habits. It's a difficult process. But you know something? God is not only just, he's patient. Aren't we thankful for that? And he suffers long with his imperfect children And by his spirit and his word, over time, we are progressively sanctified. And through the truth, he roots out those flaws in our thinking, and he takes away those faults in our practices. And gently, and I have to say masterfully, the Holy Spirit rids us bit by bit of our sins and our errors. And it's a painful process. Crucifixion is always painful. It was excruciating. It was a lingering death. 
crucifixion. But as Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and they continue crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. As obliged by our baptismal vow, we are to mortify these evil desires and we die to sin. Isn't that a good way to evangelize? Come and die. But we have not obtained a complete victory yet, and we won't in this life. You and I will struggle and we will fight against the remnants of sin until we die, till we draw our last breath. But its dominion is broken. We're not its slaves, and we can fight against it. And hence, gradually and increasingly, we become more and more like Jesus, and his reflection begins to be seen more and more clearly in our speech and our behavior. That's sanctification. And in this process, God grants us the privilege of working along with him. That's a privilege. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, says the Apostle Paul, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And God enlists our own efforts in accomplishing this gradual process. He calls us to be diligent in our use of the ordinary means, which is why we show up every Sunday morning and Sunday evening if we can. We're diligent. And he answers and he blesses and he sanctifies So the Ephesian magicians and the occultists forfeited a large windfall profit. Like Moses, they considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And here we discover a vivid illustration of genuine repentance unto life. Remember when Peter reported on what happened with Cornelius, as Pastor Pilon read? When they heard the good news of what had happened in Cornelius' household, They glorified God and they said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a saving grace, you know. It's something only God can give. Repentance. Our catechism teaches us that repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift from God. It's one of the fruits of Christ's vigorous sacrifice because a sinner, which is you and me, a sinner can no more repent on his own strength than change his own heart. It can't happen. God granted to the Ephesian magicians the gift of repentance unto life. And don't overlook the fact that these were voluntary confessions and willing sacrifices. Nobody forced them to do this. The magicians would rather unburden their consciences than gain great wealth from the sale of these magical books, magic books. So first they confessed their sins and disclosed their sinful practices. That's instructive. Because in true repentance, the repentance that leads to life, there's confession. You unburden your soul. You have to know yourself to be a sinner, to be delivered from sin. That's what Jesus means when he said, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You have to know it. Confess it. 
But then secondly, they turned away from their sins and utterly forsook them. It would not have been enough, in other words, simply to grieve over their evil practices. They should do that. They should grieve. That's an important part of it. But true, true repentance involves more. They had to forsake their sins, turn from them, mortify the flesh. You know, we hear that word mortify all the time. Well, in our circles, I guess we do. It's an old-fashioned term. When it first became used in this context, it was grotesque. You murder your desires. You crucify your sins. You so fight against them that you kill them. And so they abandon even all the occasions of sin and all the provocations to that kind of sin, and it shows how serious they were. They got rid of all the books filled with spells and incantations. They got rid of those things that had any potential to tempt them. And so convinced were they of how evil they were, they utterly destroyed them. They could have made a great profit. $200,000. But they wanted no part of contributing to the delinquency of others. So all the occasions of sin, all the temptations to sin were burned in the fire. And it shows that true repentance, confession and turning, involves self-denial and oftentimes self-sacrifice something our culture doesn't want to hear about, does it? Self-denial, self-sacrifice. We live in a society, let's be honest, that emphasizes luxury and self-gratification. It is, in other words, a hedonistic culture. That's our culture. It's hedonistic. It's bent on pleasure-seeking and self-indulgence. But though our culture doesn't want to hear about repentance, it's the only way to salvation. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, he said this to men who were hoping to set up an earthly kingdom, his disciples. And they recoiled at the thought of his crucifixion and their own. They wanted no part of that. They wanted earthly prizes and worldly honors and temporal rewards, and they failed to see that he had to suffer and die if we are to be saved. They didn't see it. Because Christianity defers the crown of glory as it lays a cross on our shoulders. And so we have to fight the good fight of the faith because no cross, no crown. We must understand that when a person turns to Christ, it will cost him. As oftentimes we've said before, salvation is free but it's going to cost you everything you have. You'll have to endure hardship and difficulty and shame and even perhaps the loss of your life. And for the sake of the kingdom, you may have to give up those things that are most cherished to you. This is so countercultural. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, said Jesus. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So we must deny ourselves in this life or we will never reach the life to come. That's what the import of his statement is. And the Ephesian people convinced themselves by the Holy Spirit that heaven is far more valuable than earth. So Luke concludes this small summary with a very encouraging statement. He says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here we have the Holy Spirit attending the gospel with his almighty gracious power. And as that word moved forcefully and rapidly throughout the city, people were coming to Christ. And the extent of its influence increased and the number of converts multiplied and in the hands of the blessed spirit, the word is a very powerful influence. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Could you and I not agree right now? that those magicians were very unlikely converts? If we could have polled the Ephesian people of that day, I bet you few if anybody would have expected their conversion. They were not your run-of-the-mill sinners. These were professionals. Professional sinners. They didn't just dabble in sin, they were heavily steeped in sorcery. But God seized their hearts through the gospel and captivated them by his word, and they were transformed by the word of the cross. And they abandoned their sins and changed their habits and broke off their evil practices, and they had been sweetly, sovereignly, and summarily conquered by Christ. So, first lesson, let's appreciate from this, I think, the incredible power of God's word. In the Spirit's hand, this gospel is mighty in convincing and converting sinners. It's a powerful instrument in the Christian's own sanctification. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus implies that God sanctifies us by means, not directly, but indirectly. That's how he works. The Spirit brings it about through the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, it is a great fallacy to think that God must always work directly or he's not working at all. That is a prevailing opinion. But you see, God's ordinary way of working is indirectly, through means, through preaching and the supper and Christian fellowship. This is particularly true in sanctification. By means of this inspired book, he fashions and forms believers into the image of Christ. Where are his workmanship, said Paul, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And again, as I indicated before, sanctification is not instantaneous. That's why you never pass judgment on your brother or your sister. You can't see his or her heart. We talked about this in Sunday school. You can see the sin. You can't see the heart. 
And do not think that you'll be conformed to the image of Christ suddenly. We Americans, as you know, like instantaneous gratification. That's how we've been trained. Like it now. But we can't be impatient about this. We can't be in a hurry because sanctification is a slow, gradual, ongoing process of becoming holy. And we grow and increase through stages from immature to mature, and the work of the ministry builds up the body so that we attain mature manhood. In the judgment of this world, Paul should have been ashamed of the gospel. Look around. People who stand for the gospel are not only reviled, but they're publicly shamed. But you see, Paul knew by experience that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. And yet you and I are tempted to adopt the judgment of the world. Just to give you one example, we entertain doubts as to the efficacy of God's word in saving sinners. So we're tempted to introduce gimmicks, innovations into worship, to gather them in. We've just got to fill the pews. But the message of Christ crucified is the foundation of all our hopes. It's the fountain of all of our joys, because only by his death can we live. And insofar as we trust in this Jesus and rely upon his blood, we're saved from the coming wrath. He died on a cross. He paid the price of redemption. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and then he rose from the grave, and that's the gospel. And that is what this fading world calls folly. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and God blesses the preaching of that foolishness in order to save sinners. I fear... I don't have statistics to back this up, but I fear that the majority of American churches, not the world, but churches, don't take the word of God seriously. And perhaps that's why American evangelicalism has been described as a mile wide and an inch deep. E.J. Young says this, unless the church turns to this authoritative word of the sovereign God, unless the church is willing to hear the word of God in the one place where that word may be heard, she will soon cease to be the church of the living God. But then secondly, let's understand how dangerous is the presumption of men. Because this is the opposite error from the one we were just considering. Because by some, the word of God is slighted, but by others, it is idolized. Sadly, because of human depravity, even the word of God is open to this abuse. That is to say, people ascribe to this written book only what the Spirit can do. The Bible has no power in and of itself. None. There's no mechanical power associated with it. The reason the gospel is the power of God is because of the working of the Holy Spirit. He alone makes the scriptures an effective means of saving and sanctifying sinners. And some people act as if the mere reading and preaching of the word will convert somebody. 
Have you ever heard this? You know something? If only he would listen to that sermon, if only he would hear that teaching, he'd become a Christian. That's not true. It happens only when the Spirit of God drives home the truth to the heart of that person. And he's sovereign. He blows where he wishes. But somebody says to me, doesn't God's word say that it will not return empty? Doesn't it always produce fruit? Isaiah 55. Well, sometimes God's purpose is to bear witness against an impenitent people. No saving power accompanies it. The word simply leaves them inexcusable. Consider that striking prophetic commission of Isaiah when he was commissioned by the Lord. Isaiah 6 verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like a commission like that? Isaiah, your ministry is going to harden their hearts and stiffen their necks and further entrench them in their sin. That's what you're going to do. You see, some people view the word not as a means of grace, but I think as a law of grace. One need only read it, hear it, memorize it, and salvation is guaranteed. And that was one of the great sins of the Pharisees. They trusted in the letter of the law. They rested in the mere book without trusting in the living Christ. They looked at it like the law of gravity. The law of grace always works. So let's admit that the Bible is a valuable book. It's majestic. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God. But without the Spirit's power, this book can't change a thing. The gospel can be, and often is, a fragrance of death to death. So whether we slight or idolize the word, either one, we're sinning, and we ought to be diligent to maintain a balance. It's a powerful, divinely inspired instrument, the use of which God promises to bless don't be put off by those who reject the free offer of salvation. It's not our responsibility to change the heart. It's for us simply to trust God and to rely upon his word as the spirit uses it to convince and convert sinners. I grew up going on fishing trips in Canada with my dad and grandfather. I love to fish. Some of you probably do too. And sometimes the three of us would be out on our little boat all morning long, five or six hours, without catching a thing. We got skunked. And we enjoyed the fellowship, but we didn't have any fish to show for it. A conservative estimate, I think, is 50 casts per hour, which would be, among the three of us, 750 casts for five hours. Why am I telling you this? Sometimes we'd have a good catch, maybe six or seven fish, and we considered that a great morning. So we had less than 10 keepers with 750 casts, and we viewed that as a success. If you calculate it, that's less than 1% success rate, exactly 0.93. 
But we thought it was a productive outing. And do you see my point? God calls us to be fishers of men and women. By word and deed, we seek to spread this word. And if our lure is in the water, if we're casting, even a 1% success rate is cause for rejoicing. Let's be confident in our use and commitment to God's inspired word. And to quote the apostle, let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. Cast your lure in the water, and God will bless. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful episode that took place in the Ephesians among those magicians. We thank you for the salvation of their souls, and Father, we look forward to meeting them in heaven. And we pray that you'll help us to be confident in your word, not to idolize it, but to trust that the Spirit will use it to bring sinners to Christ and to build up believers in becoming more and more like Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.